The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, All This Science I Don't Understand edition. It's Wednesday, June 5th, 2019. On today's show, Rocket Man is a fanciful biopic of the legendary pianist, singer-songwriter, rock icon Elton John. And then Chernobyl is HBO's uh, new limited series. It's a dramatized deep dive into the catastrophic failure of the um, nuclear reactor in the late 1980s. And finally, Cops is uh, the first and by almost any measure the most successful reality TV show in history. A new podcast looks at how it's made, who it has harmed, and how it has framed our understanding of crime in America. Julia Turner will not be joining us today due to a, I'm sorry to report, medical emergency. I hope she is uh, doing well. Julia, get better. So we've gathered up a team of people to see us through on a last minute basis. The culture editor of Slate is Forrest Wickman. He's been choppered in. <laughs> it's so true. Forrest, how you doing? Uh, good. Welcome back to the show. Um, and, uh, and of course, Slate's uh, film critic is Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. In one sense, Rocket Man is a by-the-books rock and roll biopic. A young Reginald Dwight grows up in a miserably broken and cold home, discover he's, uh, discovers he's a musical prodigy, begins to write songs, changes his name to Elton John, achieves fame and fortune, descends into booze and pills, you know the drill. Um, but the movie in execution is anything but road. It's more a Broadway stage musical um, than a behind-the-music uh, episode with ma- many magical realist interludes in which you know the cast breaks into song and dance john is played by taron edgerton and the movie which we'll get into is curiously directed by the same uh sort of the same person behind bohemian bohemian rhapsody to very different effect but let's uh let's listen to a clip what's this Hmm? number 11 in italy the song doesn't work that's the problem the record's coked out mor the problem is you have never understood me and what I have to go through. And you know what? I should have sacked you when you left me. I am glad I left you. It means I can maintain some objectivity on your self-indulgent myopic little world. Get in the studio and make some music or don't. I don't care. Well, you will when your money runs out. Do your worst. In fact, take me to court. You signed contracts with me years ago, so I'll still be collecting my twenty percent long after you've killed yourself. Um, Dana, that's that's in 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 itself, that's a trite moment in any rock biopic, right? The nader approaching moment where it becomes clear the manager who has been entrusted with the arc of one's career and the bulk of one's you know ever growing finances is now finally revealed as a complete snake who has doesn't have your uh, you know your interests at heart it, it's a movie suggests he was actually in love with this person um but this movie is am i right this movie in execution is anything but wrote it has all of the stations of the rock star cross but uh, it's done in a in a um, highly fanciful way 
Yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about it now because I've been puzzling ever since last night on seeing this movie why I enjoyed it so much and and found it so full of energy and and sparkling. And I don't know that it taught me a ton about Elton John's actual trajectory. And we should mention as well that he and his husband are the producers behind the movie. And so it is one of those authorized biopics. Um, But it doesn't feel like a piece of artificial puffery. As you heard in that scene, it definitely shows some of the darker moments of of Elton John and doesn't lionize him or heroize him. and I think really it, it comes down to, as you said, the way the musical numbers are staged and the way that they're woven into his story as these almost, um, as you say, ma- magic realist kind of psych- bursts of psychological expression of what he's feeling at that moment. And that happens, as as I understand it, in a completely ahistorical way, right? Like he's in back in his childhood, we see him as a, as a kid growing up in a somewhat repressive household with a very unaffectionate father and a kind of crazy controlling mother. And uh and he's this lonely kid. And there's a moment that he and everyone in the household, almost Paul Thomas Anderson style in Magnolia, right. where everybody knows the same song magically, starts separately singing this song, I Want Love, which is so beautifully evocative for that moment. But that song is actually a song that Elton John and his writing partner, Bernie Taupin, who's a character in the movie played by Jamie Bell, wrote in 2001. They wrote it decades later, right? So there's this it kind of, I guess you'd say, a chronological weaving of the music in and out of the story of the life in a jukebox musical kind of way. What it's really about is taking Elton John, Bernie Taupin songs, classics, most of which you know we know and have heard on radio for decades and everybody has them engraved in their minds, and finding places to plug them in to his story to help you understand something about his life. And, uh, and those moments are so full of joy and surprise that in spite of the fact that, as you say, every beat is hit that you expect to be hit, it's like the walk hard parody, you know, is, is just being <laughs> replayed again with sawing a couch in half because you're, you know, so miserably drunk and, and high. All of those kind of jokes could be made about this movie, but you don't roll your eyes at it. Instead, it's partly Taron Edgerton's incredibly charming and charismatic yeah. performance, just doing his own singing. And it partly is the staging of those numbers, I think. And mm-hmm. the fact that in general, the casting right. is very strong. Richard Madden, who plays John Reed, the uh, the manager turned, you know, evil uh, uh, manipulator that we heard in that clip, uh, is is really excellent. Everyone's really excellent. Yeah. And, yeah uh, through and, through. and somehow you bounce out of this movie feeling whistling Elton John songs and feeling like you sort of saw the best behind the music episode you ever saw. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with that assessment. I mean, Forrest, you have... These, you know, in a movie like this, you go in with a huge plus, which is the music, which are so familiar. They're like the trees in the wind. They're more like facts of nature now than they are, you know, products of culture. Um, and this huge minus, which is that we've seen this fucking, I mean, oh my God, it's like the fucking liturgy. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like going to church, you know, it's just the same stories, the same beats getting hit every single time and what they managed to do is take these two ingredients and throw them together in a in a highly unexpected and infectious way yes or no yeah i came in so i should say that i enjoyed this movie that said i came into this taping sort of worried that i was going to have to be the defender of this movie and i'm sort <laughs> of relieved to uh be forced into being the the hater or detractor or doubter here i so i liked this movie but i think that um you know, it's principal innovation on the 
biopic formula is just injecting those cliches with like the cliches of the jukebox musical. And I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. Like, I think it basically works and it's enjoyable. And sure, it's a fine excuse to listen to Elton John's music. But I don't think it actually like taught me anything about Elton John's music. Mm -hmm. Uh, Specifically, this the relationship between this movie and Elton John's music is really weird because the movie reminds you over and over again that Elton John didn't really have almost anything to do with the lyrics of his biggest hits and yet it uses those songs to express all like his whole life story as if they're deeply personal in fact there's a point later where elton john meets uh i I believe it's his future wife for the first time and she says something like oh man your songs uh they used to be so personal like they they were so honest that's they were so open that's what i loved about them and it's like Eh, were they or were they like half about fictional astronauts, <laughs> fictional rock stars, um, fictional music genres, etc.? And so there, it just didn't totally hold together for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, I am not a big Elton John head. Of course, I'm a fan because who's not? So maybe you guys will be able to talk me out of this. But I felt about this movie, sort of how I feel about Elton John's music, which is that I really like it and it's really crowd-pleasing, but it's never um, quite as adventurous and as boundary-pushing as it initially appears. And this movie comes out feeling really different, and then it ended up feeling like something kind of deeply traditional to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it, I mean, it's this struck me during the movie, too, especially in relation to all the outrageous costumes that he's wearing, right? And we right. get tons of fun montages of him in, you know, feathered sunglasses and, like, crazy rainbow outfits that he comes on stage and even seems to walk around town and go to drug therapy. And, um, and I was thinking about how Elton John is sort of the, the trickle-down of glam, you know? I mean, right. he's, not, he's not as edgy as David Bowie. He's not as groundbreaking as David Bowie. He's after David Bowie in some ways. At least he adopted that you know, extreme persona after right, him. Right, you have Rocket Man after Space Oddity, for right. example, yeah. And I mean, in a way, it is it is David Bowie for the masses or something like that. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's it's music that is pushing boundaries for an audience of people that yeah. have that have narrower boundaries to be pushed at. Well, I would, yeah. I, I mean, I would put it, but I would put it slightly differently, which is that you know, in the post '60s rock and roll ethos, to my knowledge he's the first person to break out with the piano as his central instrument and not the guitar which meant that you were connecting you know kind of the rock and roll ethic and aesthetic to a kind of songbook style of writing and the fact that he and Taupin were um, a classic factory style songwriting team you know the way Carol King had been earlier in her career kind of you know Holland Dozier Holland or whatever or is it Do- Dozier, Holland, Dozier, whichever. Holland, <laughs> Dozier, can, Holland. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, you know, it kind of had this, it sort of, it brought a kind of Tin Pan Alley, you know, in, in some ways, very maudlin, extremely melodic and catchy style of, a very traditional style of songwriting into rock and roll, which then got uh, prismed through his his you know, at the time repressed, but in th- at the same time, completely unrepressed sexuality. I mean, the fact that he was gay, you know, hugely flamboyant at, at, you know, sort of signaling a very odd moment in the history of the closet where you could sort of perform, you know, homosexuality without announcing it. Um, and um, yeah, so, I mean, I think that that, you know, I, I think that that's how glam kind of entered into the songwriting. Um, 
But uh, uh, Forrest, I think you really put your finger on something that I was watching for the whole time going in. You know, I had I love I love Elton John's early music. I think the run from roughly 1970 to roughly 1976 is just one of the more remarkable in in pop and and rock and roll history. I you know the songs the best ones really hold up for me. Um, you know, ti- the the effect the Tiny Dancer after all these years, it's just. You know, it, the fact that they were initially built on a certain sentimentality means that they don't really curdle over time. But the big thing about Elton John to me was like he didn't write his own lyrics. I mean, in some in some like really primal singer songwriter sense, you know, these songs can't be read as confessions of the inner states of, you know, one Elton John. And they don't, you know, together, the albums don't represent a sort of personal diary the way the five or six great albums you know from the golden period of Joni Mitchell or Neil Young obviously do and I I do think that that's I I what I love about the movie and admire about it is the performance of is his name Jamie Bell as Bernie mm-hmm. Taupin he's remarkable I mean it's a really anchoring really soulful uh, performance and a critic has astutely pointed out that he's there sort of as the foil to John the the anti-Elton John the person for whom money and success you know doesn't totally corrode who he is as a human being and the two play off of each other beautifully i think the depiction of their relationship to me is in some ways the heart heart of the picture um and then i guess the what and by the way i love the movie i mean i i was completely captivated uh, by it i love the performances i love the jukebox musicals musical interludes i think are a complete success i think what's fanciful about it like the, the way it combines what's fanciful with what's kind of a behind the scenes procedural about how you make it in the music business. But at the end of the day, the inscrutable nut is, you know, yeah, like he had a fucking horrible childhood and, you know, he, he, you know, he has to come to terms with his sexuality and his, uh, his, uh, status as a, as a substance abuser, which kind of gives the movie its arc. But God damn, if all the interesting lines aren't, given to everyone else in the movie i mean and i wonder if that's a feature dana of the movie being um shepherded by uh, elton john and his husband in a way so that this i mean do you walk away with a clear sense of who this human being is yeah no i wouldn't say so but i don't know if that's because of the apportionment of lines among characters i think there's... i don't mean that i just mean what's memorable and revealing is spoken by by other characters i'll say in this movie's offense it does make elton john look you know as as uh the promo line i wrote for our review says look like kind of a jerk <laughs> like it, there are more warts than one might expect um based on the way we've been discussing it so far that said as as you're suggesting steve they're very like they're familiar warts it follows an extremely familiar arc and and this i would be curious to talk a little bit about the way that this movie um depicts uh, elton john's sexuality and his relationship with his sexuality because this is another place that the movie ran into some cliches and some shortcomings for me i mean so i agree with you dana that like i I don't typically like asking a movie to be a different kind of movie than what it's trying to be but i do think that there is something sort of hollow at the center of this movie um and we're suggesting different ways to fill in that hollowness and so one way would have been to focus more on craft another way that you're uh we're alluding to a little bit steve it would be to have focused more on his um you know coming out story but that's something that this movie does not really explore 
particularly well, I would say, either. Like, it, it completely brushes over the fact that Elton John, you know, came out as bisexual in the middle of the 1970s, and it and it just kind of, it, it, I don't know, it just ignores that and, and the backlash against that and why he would say bisexual. Um, and it kind of overlays this traditional rock biopic pattern that, um, you know, it's the sex, drugs, and rock and roll part, but in this case, the sex stuff, where it normally might involve showing a rocker like having a lot of meaningless sex and then eventually finding some like meaningful sex at the end. When it's in the context of like showing uh, one of the first like uh, major, you know, this movie is advertising itself as having the first gay sex scene in a major studio movie, which is kind of sort of true. But when you're doing that, traditional arc with a gay rock star it ends up feeling uh kind of conservative to me like this movie has the same exact shot we got in bohemian rhapsody where the low point for this gay character is in this case gay is is walking down into a sex club uh like bathed in red light as if literally descending into hell and and there's this equation of like coming out and embracing one's sexuality with immediately being preyed on by other gay men and having to like escape that back into a more conventional monogamous world that I find um, very conservative, like maybe necessary to get these movies made, but it's frustrating. But can Mm -hmm. I say it's way, I think it's way less offensive on that tip than Bohemian Rhapsody. And when we talked about Bohemian Rhapsody, I decried that very same equivalent of the scene that you just talked about where Freddie Mercury's sexuality is entirely defined by, oh, I'm going into the den of iniquity and doing horrible, vague things that we won't know about. That also has to do, though, the difference has to do with the ratings between the two movies. Bohemian Rhapsody preserved the PG-13, right? So it did have to depict gay sex in this vague off-screen evil feeling sort of way and i would say that rocket man does better i mean it does have a scene of descent into a nightclub but it also has <laughs> a real love scene a, a, a pretty yeah. graphic and and fairly you know passionate and not without affection love scene between you know when when uh, john reed the manager who later becomes the evil manipulator and elton first get together i mean i would i would say that 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 scene does deliver something i'm not going to say it's never happened on screen before i think it's ridiculous to say that we haven't seen gay yeah. sex on screen before um but that sort of, you know, almost um, a sweet love scene is not something that we see a lot in a mainstream movie. All right. We'll let that be the last word. Rocket Man. Uh, yes, I quite liked it. People should go and let us know what you thought about it. All right. Moving on. All right. Well, before we go any further, uh, no doubt we have some business. Dana, what do you got? Yes, Steve. The business this week is principally to tell listeners that it's their last chance to join us for Slate Day. It's coming up this Saturday, June 8th in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line, that's where our show will be, and the SVA Theater in Chelsea. There will be live podcasts galore. There will be a play date with mom and dad are fighting. There will be a drag brunch with Outward. There will be a dance party at the end of the day with Chris Melanfi spinning tunes. It really is just sort of a big block party festival day with lots of Slate personalities out having fun and doing things. If you want to hear our live Culture Gab Fest on the High Line, you can get tickets at slate.com slash live. And you can also get an all-access pass to go to everything throughout the whole day at that same address, slate.com slash live. So I really hope we'll see you on June 8th at Slate Day. 
Also, Summer Strut Time is approaching. It's our yearly collection of strutty summer songs solicited from our listeners, compiled into a playlist, shared with all of you. And then we spend an entire show talking about summer music with Chris Melanfi, uh, Slate's beloved music writer. If you want to contribute some songs to the playlist, you can email us at summerstrut, that's no punctuation, summerstrut at slate.com with the name of the song and a Spotify link if you have one. That's summerstrut at slate.com. We will put all of those songs onto a big shareable playlist, and later in the summer, we will discuss them and pick our favorites on our special Summer Strut episode. Finally, in Slate Plus today, Steve and I are going to be talking about our cultural blind spots. Since Julia fessed up last week to never having seen Lawrence of Arabia, at least until uh, just before last week's show, we're going to talk about movies, books, shows, entire segments of the world that we know nothing about and what our intentions are to try to redress that lack of knowledge. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, the magazine's membership program, which is a great way to support our show. For $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and many other great Slate shows, including my new Slate Plus only podcast, Flashback, about old movies, and tons of other great benefits. So go to slate.com slash culture plus if you want to join Slate Plus today. Okay, Steve, back to the show. Chernobyl is a five-part HBO miniseries. It's a dramatic retelling of the infamous nuclear disaster. Um, After a brief framing device, the series opens with uh, an explosion, the explosion, and the ensuing disastrous fire uh, at the plant, which leaves the reactor a giant smoking wound. It's exposed in melting core in perils, not just nearby Kiev, but quite possibly a large portion of humanity, depending on how nimbly a relatively small group of scientists, bureaucrats, military leaders, emergency responders react. I don't know if you know this, but the uh, Soviet bureaucracy was not notable for its nimbleness. Um, The series follows uh, the stories of several key actors as they try to fight both the unleashed genie of uh, the radioactive fire um, but also the Soviet bureaucracy committed to untruth, and is, uh, which is so sclerotic uh, as to be in its final death throes. Let's listen to a clip. But instead, 10 years for criminal mismanagement. What does that mean? No one knows. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that to them... Justice was done because, you see, to them, a just world is a sane world. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. What happened there, what happened after, even the good we did, all of it, all of it, madness. Well, I've given you everything I know. Don't deny it, of course. They always do. All right, I should say before we dive in that the show stars Jared Harris, Stellan Skarsgård, Emily Watson, and then a rather huge cast of of remarkable uh, performers. We're joined by Sam Adams, a slate uh, veteran. Sam, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, at the heart of this sh- uh, heart of this series, I'd argue, is this sort of working friendship as it develops between a scientist and an apparatchik, and that's really Sam. I think kind of the 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 principal theme. I mean, you wouldn't want to. This is a remarkable 
production. I don't want to reduce it to a single thing, but absolutely at the heart of its preoccupation is, you know, yes, it's a disaster movie of how do you contain a fire and not just a fire, but one that threatens to, you know, really render huge portions of the earth uninhabitable, uninhabitable. But how do you reconcile this bureaucracy, this communist, uh, tyrannical bureaucracy devoted to nothing but preserving its own image um, at the expense of the truth with the scientific necessity of putting out the fire. Anyway, what'd you, what'd you make of this, this, this show? Right. Well, I mean, it's good that you mentioned that relationship because um, Jared Harris's character, Legasov, who is sort of the, the scientist going after the truth in this, he has this whole opening monologue about, um, you know, the cost of lies and losing losing touch with the truth and how when we can't access the truth, we sort of content ourselves with stories. Um, and there's a really, there's an interesting tension going on in this, both on the surface and beneath it about the, the, the sort of back and forth between this very kind of scrupulously, you know, detailed, technically accurate, um, you know, long discussions of how many Ronkins the radiation meters are reading from the plant um, and sort of more conventionally dramatic, you know, we need characters to identify with and latch on to. And, you know, we're going to have to fudge the truth or in the case of Emily Watson, scientists totally make things up. Um, just a composite character in order to do that. And the relationship between um, Jared Harris's Lagasov and Stellan Skarsgård's uh, Boris Sherbina is, is sort of the crux of that. It is, as you mentioned, you know, the scientist and the apparatchik, there's a scene where they're, they finally get to Chernobyl and, uh, Legasov is expressing his frustration with career party men and Stellan Skarsgård cuts him off and says, well, I'm a career party man. Um, and they do, of course, you know, this being a, you know, five episode drama with some arcs, they do sort of come to a, a rapprochement at, at the end. Um, but it is, there's, there's a real kind of, you know, back and forth. It's kind of a buddy movie between the two of them against the backdrop that's just incredibly, you know, horrifying and, 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 you know, quite realistic depiction of what happened, what radiation sickness does to the human body on a large scale. Yeah. And Dana, what this presents, you know, in episode after episode is sort of the trolley problem writ large, which is once you come to grips with the scale of the possible damage, how many people are you willing to grotesquely sacrifice in order to staunch this this kind of separating radioactive wound? And so over and over and over again, you know, I mean, the Soviets were were absolutely, they were the, the least, you know, kind of put off by a means end continuum where you sacrifice you know the means to the end, and and yet even even they are having trouble getting their head around um, how coldly they have to send people in um, to their certain death in order to stop this from real, you know, re- essentially contaminating, you know, p- p- large portions of the map. What what do you make of this? Is you know not just a reminder of what happened, or a or a you know kind of peek behind the scenes of what happened, but what did you make of it as a work of drama? I mean, Craig Mazin, the creator and and writer of this show, just took on an unbelievable magnitude of a of, of dramatic problem when he when he decided to write this show, right? Because he's not only setting it in a foreign country, he's you know he's positing an understanding of a culture that's very distant from our own in time and in in politics and in language and every way. Um, they don't speak Russian in the show. It's worth noting. In fact, almost everyone is British. So you have to accept it's sort of one of those old Hollywood movie scenarios where you have to accept the convention that all these clipped British accents are actually Soviet speaking Russian. Um, but also he has to convey the technical 
side of the disaster, which is a significant part of this series. It's There are a lot of conversations, Sam, as you say, that take place about how many Röntgens, you know, the measurements of, of radiation units are um, are being felt in different areas and what it means that there's graphite in the explosion site. And all of that stuff has to be essentially exposited by Jared Harris's character, who's the scientist who understands everything, to Stellan Skarsgård and the other apparatchiks who don't understand anything. And yet that has to happen in a dramatically compelling way. And there also have to be these individual stories, um, one of the main most touching ones being about a woman whose husband was a firefighter on the on the site of the very first fire when they thought that it was just a regular fire he was putting out. So he and his comrades were just up there in shirt sleeves with no protective gear putting out the fire. They all got acute radiation poisoning and died horribly in the near future. And the story of her nursing him is a major threat as well. So with all of that stuff going on, I think this show does an incredible job. But it is a real downer. I mean, it really is one of those shows that you need to get a a loved one and steal yourself to sit through. Because especially around, I guess it's around episode three, when, you know, the characters that we know got exposed in the first scene start to get sick. um, There's just some really, really heavy duty shit Mm -hmm. hitting the fan. And uh, I think Mason handles it incredibly well. I think it could be argued that there are um, there's so much condensation of ideas and historical events into particular characters and scenes that once in a while things get a little bit uh, grandstandy or, you know, hammer wielding in, in the dialogue. But um, but it's handled with a pretty light touch dramatically, given how incredibly heavy the material is. Also, I would say that visually, and this is more the doing of the, the director of the episodes, whose name is Johan Rink, I believe. Um, but visually, the show does an amazing, amazing job of taking this pretty undifferentiated, muddy space of Soviet block housing and, you know, the air full of particles and everything sort of grubby and olive green and uh, and just infusing it with a sense of incredible danger. So there'll just be a shot of, for example, a truck being hosed down after it comes out of the, the radioactive site. And this kind of sludgy, soapy water dripping off the truck just looks absolutely poisonous and frightening. So in that sense, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of horror, kind of body horror going on, yes. both in the human bodies that we see suffering, but also in just the organic materials that themselves seem to be just impregnated with this this evil substance. You mentioned um, Johan Rank, the director, and I want to get in here because I've managed to you know, watch the entire series and follow the discourse for a month now and only just learned today uh, that Johan Rank uh, was previously known as the Swedish uh, one-hit pop wonder Stack a Bow, um, who had the song Here We Go at the beginning of the 90s. And Whoa. it's just, uh, I know, <laughs> right? Like mind-blowing. And Craig Mazin, the writer who we've mentioned a lot and I, I interviewed for the site this week, um, you know, he's known for, you know, he not wrote not even the first Hangover movie, but the second and third Hangover movies and, and a couple movies in the Scary Movie franchise. Like he's just- He's a comedy whole, writer, sort of, right? I had always yeah. thought of him as a comedy writer. This whole thing is this weird tribute to just not assuming you know like what people are capable of. Like Stack a Bow and the guy who wrote Identity Thief came up with this amazing miniseries about a Soviet nuclear disaster. First of all, I love this and I was riveted by it. And um, Sam, I'm glad you pointed out that you just never know what someone, when they happen upon the right subject, is gonna is gonna come out with. Um, and they've done a beautiful, beautiful job with this. You know, and I, the one thing the 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 one thing that people are fascinating on is is does it get a little broad in the like comrade you know the kind of retrospective indictment of communism which i am you know all for but you know in kind of turning it into a, 
uh, an allegory about what happens when a communist bureaucracy, which believes it has this total monopoly on truth, you know, has to confront a catastrophic event whose confrontation requires openness and transparency. And like what the really, I mean, essentially, this is a post-truth. It, th- this is both a procedural about how the Chernobyl disaster happened and was responded to and a post-truth parable. Um, and I sometimes feel as those two, as though those two things are working a little bit at odds with one another. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, Mason, I mean, Craig Mason started writing this sh- series, I think about five years ago. So I was in the Obama administration back before, Donald Trump was anything more than a sort of a political joke. So it is, it's weird to use the word lucky um, with anything connected with Chernobyl, but it has sort of, you know, lucked into, and I think been, you know, fitted to this, this moment when we're very much discussing kind of matters epistemological on a daily basis. Um, So it, I mean, it is a condemnation of the Soviet system, but when you have um, scenes like where they're um, the crews on the ground are saying, well, we, you know, we found this, uh, radioactive graphite on the scene. And that could only mean that the core exploded. And this is a much bigger disaster than anyone has come to terms with. And um, Dyatlov, who's the kind of chief engineer and one of the sort of main villains in this, but not the main one, the show's a pain to explain, says, well, you, you know, you can't have seen radioactive graphite on the ground because it isn't there. Um, And just that, you know, is is a blunt moment. But at the same time, I mean, they find it so powerful, just this this sort of straightforward authoritarian denial you you cannot have seen this therefore you didn't see it yes right and 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 exactly the soviet empire the marxist empire the glorious marxist empire which rested so much of its image and self-image on you know uh its ability to industrialize at such an incredibly rapid pace um and they they were super proud of soviet science it just cannot be that they conduced to this catastrophic failure and so the amount of denial and and um newspeak required to kind of uh, cover it up uh is insane one other thing i wanted to say um and i throw this open to either one of you but it just kind of at the most existential level what came home to me over and over and over again is both communism and nuclear power are complete human constructs right you are talking about human beings having to fight something that is almost sublime in its scale and its force and its totality in both the political construct of 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 marxist leninism and in our unleashing the genie of the subatomic realm and it just to me that was what was so both forceful and depressing about this show is that we're not fighting some alien beast or some alien race we're not fighting some natural disaster or act of god we are literally fighting an existential war with ourselves you know now at all moments uh and so it just it it just is incredible that human beings can construct forces that seem so beyond our powers of comprehension but they are completely the, res- the residual effects of our own powers of creation. And that to me was just, there was something th- so thrilling and so fucking depressing about that uh, at the same time. Um, 
Well, on that note, the show is Chernobyl. It's on HBO. It's a pretty astonishing uh, watch. And um, I hope our listeners see it and respond to it with us on uh, Twitter. Okay. Uh, Sam, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It was great. Great having you. Oh, thank you, guys. Dan Tabersky's Running From Cops is a new podcast that goes behind the scenes of the reality TV show Cops, which is not just any reality TV show. It's the first one. And uh, by, I think, almost any measure, the most successful reality TV show in the history of the medium. Uh, But that's only the surface hook here. This is a deep dive into a show dedicated to turning policing into entertainment, uh, built on the obvious ingredients of prurience and fear. Tabersky's show goes uh, deeper still to show us how the show is made and edited, how routine police stops um, are, in fact, anything but routine. But he's really asking a much larger question, which is who is control of the framing of the crime problem. Reagan, the GOP, white panic, reality TV, it all came uh, together, added up to a war on drugs, and uh, with the net result of the highest incarceration rates of any democratic society in history, this is a very, very serious uh, show about a very serious subject. Let's listen to a clip. How did it feel to be on the side of the police? Did you have mixed feelings about potentially not showing the other point of view, which may make you see police in a different way? Um, I was never conflicted. and I never thought that police and police brutality was a big issue in my life. I never really saw that. I mean, it's a theme that you have. Uh, is it? Yeah, it's the second time you've asked. Like, The truth is, nothing that these cops did suggested to me that they were that they were wrong in any sense. I mean, I you know, they were getting drug dealers and domestic disputes and stuff, so I I thought they were doing their job, but no, I didn't have any conflict thinking I'm on the other side or something. No, that that wasn't my conflict. No. All right, the voice we just heard is the voice of Stephen Chow, who is a uh, executive at Fox uh, Entertainment, uh, the TV division of Fox, who was instrumental in the creation and promulgation or at least the promulgation of the tv of the tv show we're joined by ingu kang a staff writer at slate to talk about the show welcome to the show ingu hi hello hello i was absolutely floored by this podcast i'm very curious uh what your impressions of it were um i was also definitely floored it was one of those times where i couldn't stop listening so i ended up paying for like a whole um i think stitcher and like a lot of other companies has one of those things where you can binge listen the whole thing if you have like a little nominal fee and i paid that 4.99 because as soon as i started listening to it i really could not stop listening to it um it's an incredibly ambitious podcast that is actually like the rare cultural analysis that is based on a lot of numbers. And you can tell that a whole lot of work went into this in order to make its point that it sort of like gets through very gradually, which is that cops probably is like indistinguishable from pro-police propaganda. And it sort of sounds like a little like wild and wacky maybe if you just listen to it like if you just listen to that statement on its head and yet it's hard to come up with any other conclusion by the end of the podcast 
Well, I'm curious to know what you guys' history with the show Cops is. As the host, Dan Tversky, says close to the top of the podcast, probably most people listening are not even aware that Cops is still on after all these decades. But I do remember it being a syndicated program that would be on in that kind of zone in between the evening news and whatever primetime programming was on almost every night in the early 90s. And Cops was just this utility that was just always kind of flowing out of your television, whether you were completely watching it or just sort of had it on in the background. It was just there. And I know that there was a period when I and a few of my friends in the early 90s were briefly obsessed with cops because there was just nothing like it on the air at the time. And the show is good on that, too, on how, you know, it was one of the granddaddies of the reality TV movement as we know it and how part of the huge audience it attracted was just that sense of illicitness that you were seeing something you weren't supposed to see, that you were somehow going along on this dangerous ride that you shouldn't be allowed to go on. And in time, I think for some of the reasons that this podcast covers about ethics and the queasiness of following along in the cop car, and partly just because the show is so formulaic and repetitive that it always felt exactly the same, our interest kind of waned. And, you know, this this group of friends in our 20s who would occasionally get together and drink beer and watch cops and kind of marvel at its, at its weirdness um, stopped watching it. But the idea that all of these things had been happening behind the scenes and the degree to which it is, as you say, Ingu, this highly manipulated piece of pro-police propaganda, you know, that they would edit hundreds of hours of, of footage down to these little three-minute segments that almost inevitably result in a satisfying arrest of the, quote, bad guys, as the cops say over and over on this show, right? It's the very theme of the show, that song, Bad Boys, right? The idea of there's good and there's evil and we're on the side of the good and we're in the car next to the cops. Um the extent to which that was the propagandistic goal of the show was, I think, just not uh, not evident on the surface to, to people that watched it as a kind of entertainment. And that's what this show, this podcast is so good at digging into at how is it that policing became content for entertainment. And we all just remained fine for that and are still fine with it 30 years later. Um, I think Dana asked, what is my relationship to cops? And I think that I almost found it like, too scary to watch, um, <laughs> which I realize now makes me sound really like a weenie. Um, but yeah, like I think, um, and Tversky really goes into this. Tversky has a history himself as a reality TV producer. Although if you check his IMDb credits, there are sort of like more wholesome shows about robot wars or something like that. But even so, um, one of the really valuable perspectives that he brings into the show is that history that he himself has. And so he talks about how the show is edited to look really real. And I think that that worked for me. It seemed a little bit too crazy to all constantly watch these like uh, chases and like violent arrests sometimes um, happen in the dark. And it was one of those things where maybe like on a subconscious level, I was happy that people were doing that type of work, but I didn't have to think about it too hard myself because so why would that ever involve me? Right. The whole idea of cops, if you were watching it from the position of a comfortable person who is unlikely to be pulled over by the cops, is that you're 
seeing some underbelly of the world that you wouldn't otherwise get to see. And I now see that as an extremely naive reaction to the show. I mean, in my defense, I was a young, very young person when I had that reaction. But uh, especially knowing how the sausage gets made after hearing this podcast, I think I would find cops extremely scary to watch. And the scariest thing about it would be the stuff that wasn't on screen and that you knew had to be cut away and hidden for that narrative to be formed. What's remarkable about the show is it, 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 in addition to doing the first level of muckraking, which is saying, you know, this is so heavily edited as to be, you know, to call it reality is really actually sort of a joke. But then it takes it to the next level and, and a bunch of producers sit down and watch some thousands of hours of the TV show in order to figure out how unrepresentative these um, stops are uh, and arrests are relative to you know, the st- available statistics on on who gets arrested and how. So this show focuses inordinately on drug arrests um, uh, uh, and, of course, super racialized. I mean, you tend to have white cops and you tend to have people of color as the as the quote unquote, you know, perpetrators. Um, and then finally, the, the kind of big picture that's being gotten at here is this was a this was a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. I mean, the the great political irony of the United States over the last 30 years is that our crime rates actually were quite relatively high in the 1980s. And for they've done nothing but decline over the last 30 or 40 years, unrelentingly all over the country, year after year, crime and violent crime statistics decline. Um, And it happens almost regardless of what method of policing or whatever political you know, slant is put on the problem. So clearly it's some massive generational and structural change to the point where we're now a relatively safe and low crime um, society. I mean, we're always more violent and crime ridden than our peers for all kinds of grotesque historical reasons, but certainly relative to our own past, we're in good shape. Running alongside this is this super popular TV show, which depicts us as, you know, so crime ridden that a degree of, you know, of having our turning ourselves into a kind of police state informal police state is somehow um justified and so this you know the super valuable function of this podcast is 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 really getting beneath the surface of why this particular form of spectacle is is so has been so successful and has created a you know created a different problem essentially the problem of over policing and mili- over militarized uh policing that led eventually to the to thank god to the backlash of black lives matter um and so i you know it seems to me ingu this is this is what's remarkable about the achievement of the show is i went in expecting you know a kind of cops about cops you know, a, a kind of like we dug, we 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 found unedited footage, and we figured out that these things are sort of slanted. It goes so much deeper and so much wider than that. I mean, I think what is really powerful about the show, at least for a, a person concerned with culture like I am, is that he really takes breaks down like the process of making reality TV, and then shows that sort of like at every step of. Pr- at every step of the production process, if there is like an opportunity for there to for something to go wrong, something will go wrong. I think for me, one of the most powerful storylines in the podcast was when Taberski goes to interview people who wound up on the show and say that they never signed release forms. There's a whole um, spectrum of like 
um, potential problems that can go wrong in trying to get release forms. Um, one example is, can a person who is arrested sign if they are drunk or high or whatever else? And uh, we get the impression, I think, uh, fairly correctly that the producers are not always super scrupulous when it comes to waiting until the arrestee has uh, is like back into like a acceptable state of mind to make such a huge legal decision as to allow themselves to appear on national TV and you know sort of like in a terrible in a inebriated state of mind. Um, I think another example is these people who also appeared on the show saying that they were harassed by um, police officers themselves who kept knocking on their door at home for like, I don't know, weeks or months after their arrest. And basically because they were harassed by the police, felt like they had to sign those release forms, even though they initially had no um, intention to do so. There was one man who said that he was really tired of the cops coming over to his house. So he essentially exchanged his privacy for $40. And so um, that's just like one tiny step in like the production process of getting those release forms. And so you see that basically when these two very powerful forces of like the entertainment industry or like reality TV programming and the police department sort of use, um, have this like mutually beneficial relationship where they're sort of like parasites onto each other. Uh, a lot of things are really going wrong. <laughs> Yeah, another shocking fact that comes out pretty early in the podcast is that the cops, the police departments that agree to have the show record with them and ride around with their officers get final cut. They have uh, they have a right to I think they have 10 days or so to um to make changes to an episode after it's made. So, you know, clearly they are sanding off the edges of things that make them look bad. Although it seems like there's plenty of stuff that makes it into cops that does make the cops look bad, but I guess the police officers themselves don't think so because they're signing off on it. Um, I should also say that Ingu has a piece about this subject up on Slate, uh, an investigative podcast about cops proves we underestimate underestimate reality TV at our own peril. Ingu, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, because it's just the two of us endorsing this week, because we don't have Julia, I'm going to go a little bit long and do two endorsements um, of absolutely different character. The first one is is really sad and depressing, and the second is really joyful and is one of the things that really lifted my spirits this week. So um, the first recommendation is is related to the Chernobyl show, the HBO show that we talked about. It's called Voices from Chernobyl. I'm sure that this must have been one of the books that uh, that Craig Mason used in researching and prepping for um, for his, his show. It got the Nobel Prize in Literature the, the year it came out. And it's just an oral history, a short book that's an oral history of survivors of Chernobyl, the families of survivors or people who didn't survive and uh, and their individual piecemeal memories of what happened over those years. Uh, the woman in the show, the character in the show who we talked about, who is the wife of a fireman who follows the fireman to Moscow and accompanies his horrible death in the hospital there, is based on a real woman, uh, Ludmilla is her is her name, who is the very first speaker in this book. And to give you a little sense of the uh, of the intimacy of the book and just what the tone of it is, I'll read you the beginning of the first oral history, which is hers, Ludmilla's. I don't know what I should talk about, about death or about love, 
or are they the same? Which one should I talk about? We were newlyweds. We still walked around holding hands, even if we were just going to the store. I would say to him, I love you, but I didn't know then how much. I had no idea. We lived in the dormitory of the firehouse where he worked on the second floor. There were three other young couples. We all shared a kitchen. On the first floor, they kept the trucks, the red fire trucks. That was his job. So I always knew what was happening, where he was, how he was. One night I heard a noise. I looked out the window. He saw me. Close the window and go back to sleep. There's a fire at the reactor. I'll be back soon. I didn't see the explosion itself, just the flames. Everything was radiant, the whole sky, a tall flame and smoke. The heat was awful, and he's still not back. And uh, her, her story is just so beautifully told. I don't know what Svetlana Alexeyevich, the author of this oral history, does to get this um, this kind of intimate interview tone with people, but everybody just speaks to her in such plain, honest, almost unintentionally poetic terms. And uh, it's just, it's an, an extraordinary book. Um, the Oral History of a Disaster, Chernobyl by Svetlana Alexeyevich. And then my second endorsement, which is meant to neutralize the sadness of, of that book, Voices from Chernobyl, is just the happiest moment I had related to culture this week. If you follow me on Twitter, you might have seen this happen, but I was just absolutely freaking out watching the finals of the script Spelling Bee, which I watch every mm. year, but which had a very unusual outcome this year, which you may have read about the outcome, but it's not the same as experiencing it in real time. What happened was they got down in the last few rounds to this extraordinarily phenomenal group of spellers who were just not missing any words. I think they went 45 minutes or something without anybody getting dinged out, nobody missing any words. And uh, as the announcer, Dr. Bailey, the wonderful man who reads out the words every year, said, and I believe round 17, it was getting to be quite late at night. It was uh, 11 o'clock at night or so. And uh, he was saying, we've never had this many kids standing in round 17 before. It was, I think, seven years or so since they had even gone past round 17, but it was obvious that with eight spellers still spelling perfectly, they were going to have to do something different. They were running out of time. And and as he said, which is really hard to comprehend given the size of the English language lexicon, they were running out of words that were challenging enough for these kids to have a hard time spelling them. They were essentially running out of, of good enough words to give them. And so during a break, the producers of the show, the readers of the words, got together and decided that instead of having just one winner or occasionally they'll be co-champions when they tie, that they were going to have as many winners as spelled their words correctly for the next three rounds. In other words, they would go 20 rounds and whoever was still standing at the end of the 20th round would be co-champions with everybody else. And so then every kid, of course, um, has their face light up because they realize I don't have to beat everybody else out. All I have to do is spell three more words right, right, in these last three rounds and I will be the script spelling bee champion. And of course, for me, we've talked before in this show about how I resist sports and games because of the zero sum logic of having to beat anyone out. And that's the tragedy of even watching something like the spelling bee, right, is the sadness of the kids getting dinged out. So I was just in heaven. Like, all I want is for every single one of these kids to place. And, uh, and it happened. It was just so suspenseful and so much fun to watch as one by one, these seventh and eighth grade kids came up to the mic, spelled ridiculously impossible words that you can't believe are part of the English language. You could play along at home with this kind of multiple choice test they gave you. But I mean, come on, these kids are doing it without any multiple choice in front of all these people out of their brains. And one by one, they all did it and they all became champions. And something that I really, really loved about the outcome, especially in the Trump era of like everybody getting nickeled and dimed and, you know, the idea that you would actually be treated with any largesse by any kind of institution has become so foreign to us is that 
every single one of them got the $50,000 prize. That's the prize for the script spelling bee, along with various, you know, I think there's grants and you get tons of reference books. And I don't know if you get a scholarship or what, but you definitely get $50,000. And rather than dividing up that pot among the eight kids, they just gave one to all of them, which was just this wonderful, gave you this wonderful sense of abundance and possibility. So I was crying, pumping my fist. It was just, it was, it was my Super Bowl. Um, so I guess what I'm endorsing, you can't go back and watch it live again, but ESPN, who aired The Spelling Bee, has made a 15-minute clip of the last few rounds. So you get to see Dr. Bailey's announcement about changing the rules, and then you get to see each of the kids step up and spell their winning word. And it's just absolutely heart lifting. And I highly recommend it, the script spelling bee. So we'll link to that video too. Oh, wow. Yeah, I heard about that. Um, that's just, that's amazing. Uh, all right. So this week I am endorsing the um, the book Killers of the Dream by Lillian Smith, uh, which I'd been meaning to read for a long time, finally got around to it. And it's an extraordinary book. It's part of a very small genre of works by white Southerners, American Southerners, who write about um, growing up in the South relative to white supremacy and the consciousness and white consciousness in the South of race race relations and what it is to grow up with this deep attachment to the soil, the climate, the atmosphere, the small town life, the face-to-face existence, all of the things about the South that are the food, the, you know, uh, to uh, church life, all of the, th- you know, just living in something that feels like a face-to-face community in an uh, ever le- ever more anonymous society. Um, all of the things that, that uh, virtually anyone who comes from the South, white or black, does associate with its supposed virtues. And what it's like to then come of age realizing that it's a, um, a deeply traumatized and sick society built on uh, the exploitation and, and degradation of uh, American blacks. And, um, you know, uh, I group it with uh, The Mind of the South by W.J. Cash um, and also uh, Clarence Kaysen's 90 Degrees in the Shade. But Smith is, Smith's is, uh, is a really interesting and unique one. I mean, she, first of all, she's it's very personal um, as well as being sort of sociological and broad. It's it's it is really personal and autobiographical added to which she's kind of a Freudian um, like a classic sort of mid-century Freudian and that she sees things through a psychosexual lens like including social relations and so she gets tries to get really deep into the idea of the sexual fears of uh, of white southerners vis-a-vis blacks and what its possible origins might be i mean in some ways that strike me as dated and others that strike me as utterly convincing but but kind of more than anything it, what was amazing about the book is it was published in 1949 and all of its complexities resolve around one simple um, demand, which is end segregation now, right? No incrementalism, no, you know, when the moment is right, or, you know, you can't do this too quickly, or none of that. She's like, end segregation now. It is it is so damaging to the psyche of both whites and blacks, not only in the South, but uh, throughout the entire country. And she just, it, it's it manages to be both a a beautifully realized, highly personal memoir, a dispassionate sociological tract on uh, kind of the history of uh, race relations in the South, and a 
Jeremiah, right? Like a and a political pamphlet, right? A demanding a political pamphlet with a single demand at its center, and it's just a remarkable book. I mean, I, I bear in mind it is, you know, it is by a Southern white woman. It is from the point of view of Southern whites, um, and it is dated. It is from the mid century, but it, it is it's it's too it, it people who study the civil rights movement um, do point to it as a as in some ways almost as big a turning point as to kill a mockingbird which of course came out came out later but um it, it played a very important role in completely reframing the debate over um segregation and re- race relations in the, in the country and i think it's a book of 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 remarkable intrinsic uh, value as well it's not just a sort of historical document um and there are parts of it that just have an almost you know blakean kind of apocalyptic apocalyptic insight into how you know how the human psyche uses division um in order to establish its own i I, you know kind of tenuous identities um it's just an amazing it's an amazing work and and highly recommended killers of the dream by lillian smith all right well thank you dana thanks steve a peculiar show and that um it's only the two of us endorsing yeah it's just I, i very much miss julia this this week and i hope she's doing better yeah me too You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. And we do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and uh, a whole host of <laughs> fillers in, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. <laughs>